0: Coming to you live from the Venetian Hotel in Las Vegas and Money 2020, this is Lou Carlozo's Bankadelic. Bankadelic, the colorful side of finance where we supply expert views, riff on the news, innovate and investigate actionable insights, unscripted banking with a caffeine kick. I'm your host, Lou Carlozo, inviting you to sit back, Grab a cuppa, kick up your feet, here we go. If you're looking to grow your digital banking business, check out Lemonade LXP, the digital growth platform for financial institutions and fintechs. Lemonade LXP has both ingredients you need to drive digital growth a learning experience platform that uses daily micro learning to give staff the knowledge and confidence they need to promote and support your digital capabilities and a digital adoption platform that supports your digital capabilities with technology walkthroughs that you can author in just minutes. So if you're rolling out new technology, merging with or acquiring another FI, or just looking to drive digital banking growth, you gotta drink the lemonade. For more information, Check out Lemonade LXP at www.LemonadeLXP.com. Thanks for tuning in to Bankadelic. Lou carlozo your host, coming to you once again for the second consecutive year from Money 2020 at the Venetian in Las Vegas. Many of you have written in and said, Lou, don't do it. Don't go out on the casino floor. I will keep that promise. However, (laughs) the allure of the roulette table is sometimes very hard to resist. But then I think about more productive ways to use my time and I'm sitting with someone who lives out that philosophy like very few people I've ever met. And that's Bhavan Tarakia. Bhavan is the founder of Zeta, which is a very special company. He's a serial tech entrepreneur with strengths in collaboration and payments. He co-founded Reseller Club, Logic Boxes, and Big Rock, exiting them in 2014 for an astounding $160 million transaction. In 2015, he started Zeta, which is a modern banking tech company, providing modern core and processing for financial institutions and embeddable banking for fintechs and distributors. And we'll be talking about that as for what drives him. And I love this. Bavin says, I have always believed that it is our moral obligation to make an impact that's proportionate to our potential. He's also, by the way, closing in on 65,000 followers on LinkedIn. That's making an impact. Bavin, welcome back to Bankadelic. Thank you for having me, Lou. Uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time. We were talking before uh, we went on mic about this notion of making an impact impact that's proportionate to our potential and the passion that you have for solving problems and I heard a word that I very rarely hear from a fintech entrepreneur usually at the end of the discussion I might, hear, I might hear it but not at the beginning and that's excited so if you don't mind let's go a bit under the hood with that why are you so excited about what you do
1: well in general like so I mean Zeta is actually where I spend 80 80- 85% of my time, I actually run. Uh, I'm the founder and, and the CEO and co-founder and now three companies that I actually own and operate. But I have uh, uh, two of them. I have senior leadership. One of them, I have a CEO that runs the show. But uh, I have the um, unique privilege of of uh, working with some amazing people on a daily basis. Of uh, you know being able to solve problems. It, it almost like I tell my um, my team. It almost feels like I'm, I'm in a live and complex video game every single day with so many different variables and <laughs> so many things to learn and, you know, innumerable number of buttons and infinite levels that you can keep working towards. And, and yeah, there's nothing else more exciting in, in life. You know, I you read out my quote about, as I said, I think I, I've always believed since an early age that, you know, it's... Um, it's our moral obligation to make an impact that's proportionate to our potential. Um, people ask me all the time. You know, again, I've you know I've, I've had the privilege of an amazing upbringing with my parents, and that's really a huge contributory factor to kind of who I am and where I am, and uh, and the opportunities I've been able to both you know enjoy as well as create for others. And I often get asked that there's you know with these sort of successful serial entrepreneurial um, uh, paths, there's always been an opportunity for me to kind of stop doing what I do, smell the roses, chill out in life, or whatever not. Um, Well, I guess there's three things that have, um, that still continue to drive me. Sure, Um, what are they? One is this fundamental belief that we already covered, that I do believe, you know, I mean, if you think about it, um, we have a gift of life, Lou. I mean, I think, you know, the probability that life was sort of created on a planet all the conditions that had to be right for it to happen and then for it to evolve biologically to the forms that we are it's mind-bogglingly small probabilistic number and people always ask about okay what's the purpose of life and I feel like you've got to create that purpose you know purpose of life is a life of purpose if you think about it once your life ends if you look back if somebody were to objectively look back on it and your existence didn't matter, that means your life didn't have any purpose. Yes. But if your existence mattered, that means you made an impact, then that by itself became a purpose for your life and became a life of purpose in that regard. So, so I think that's, the, that's why the quote that I fundamentally believe in, like if you introspect that, you know, th- th- why I believe each of us has a moral obligation to make an impact proportionate to our potential, because if we didn't, then, we might as well have not existed, right? Theoretically, because it wouldn't have mattered. Um, Now, that's the, call it the altruistic or the philosophical point of view. Um, There is a selfish motive and a selfish point of view, which Mm -hmm. is, um, you know, there is, I mean, it's evolutionary biology. If you think about the happy hormones, like uh, dopamine, endorphins, oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine kicks are momentary. They, they literally, they last a fleeting second. You know, a lot of behavioral psychology goes behind apps like Instagram and TikTok to leverage this, and that's why you're constantly, lots of people are addicted to that dopamine kick, but you have to keep feeding it for it to continue. The happiness you receive from it literally lasts for microseconds or a second. Mm. But the happiness you get from serotonin, from oxytocins, far more longer lasting. In fact, it it can actually change pathways in your brain. and those hormones get triggered when you create something when you collaborate with people when you work with like-minded people when you share when you receive help when like all these sort of different interactions that you would conventionally find in in collaborative projects like running a company like solving puzzles like building something meaningful humans were built biologically to derive happiness from it. And so, you know, that's the reason why people love video games, because you're actually seeing virtually an impact being created in objective sort of, you know, um, achievements that you sort of uh, uh, level up on, right? So so I think selfishly, by default, I'm, I'm yet to find, I mean, uh, any other en- endeavor or pursuit that satisfies me, that makes me happy, that gets me as excited as continuing to run, run my many companies.
0: That is fantastic. And we should mention quickly what those other companies are, Titan and Radix, correct? Correct. That's right. Great. And in terms of creating, bring us up to date with what you are creating at Zeta and why you're excited about that. Sure. Um,
1: Me and my co-founder started Zeta in 2015. Um, You know, I always believe that entrepreneurship requires... uh, Combination of frustration and a healthy dose of delusion, <laughs> and um, and I, you know, we're both passionate about the banking industry, financial services space, and you know, what we found is that vast majority of financial institutions have probably the most technical debt that exists in the world in terms of uh, the fact that they're running on legacy platforms. Many of them were built before I was born. Products are still built on green screens. There's still mainframe technology out there. Most of it is not on the cloud. Almost none of it is on the cloud. Um, None of it leverages modern software paradigms in terms of modern architectures, the Mac Alliance principles, so sort of microservices based, API first, um, cloud native and, and, and headless. And we felt that um, reason why banks on an average take, you know, 20 plus months to launch new products. Reason why they... so, So Zeta, if you think about it, there's three or four fundamental things that is intended to change in the banking industry. One is the notion of enabling financial institutions and banks to create without constraints. I'm a techie at heart. I started coding, as I mentioned, when I was 10 years old. You know, the thing that I love about software is that it gives wings to your imagination. Mm. You can literally, you think something, you can build it. Well, that's not the case with legacy technology. For the most part, you're constrained because you know APIs are an afterthought. There's no real time events. It's not a, it's a closed data platform. Most cases, people are still using screen scraping to try and extract data out of these legacy systems. There's so many constraints to building stuff. And I feel that those constraints are getting in the way of, of really making a significant difference in the financial industry in terms of, you know, democratizing banking, uh, inclusion, accessibility, and so on and so forth. And we feel that if we were to take away these constraints and enable folks to create without constraints by conceptualizing a, and building what we've built over the last seven years with about now 1,700 people, a modern platform that is the most conducive platform for building apps, building integrations, innovating, um, substantially increases the pace of innovation that a financial institution um, um, can leverage, basically. So so that's one, creating without constraints. The second um, is is being able to launch products faster, you know, iterate way faster. On Zeta, we've demonstrably shown that banks can launch products 10 times faster. In fact, our eventual goal is to get to a point, Lou, where literally, you know, point click, you should be able to launch a full bank or any banking product in less than 24 hours. Wow um
0: Bankedelic bank yeah bankadelic. i'm gonna do
1: it <laughs> well, you, <laughs> you should try it you, you might be hot-pressed in getting the charter
0: <laughs> that will take its own time that's it i think r- they'll take one look at me and say hey, regulatory process. yeah later. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but um well you know there's ten thousand banks and credit unions in the country so don't give up hope that's the you know it's yeah. a sizable number but um, but you just, lo- just being able to, you know, I, I, as a serial tech entrepreneur, I talk about this whole notion of like, don't judge me on my success. <clears throat> judge me on the pace at which I can fail meaning how rapidly I can iterate, because everybody's gonna see failures continuously on projects, but if I can increase the pace of iteration of failures, I learn faster, I evolve,
0: and I have more successes. Yeah. And so the faster I can fail, the, f- the faster I can succeed. And therefore, is failure really failure? It's just a working towards the eventual it, it, solution it that is. is the success.
1: This is why I love the, the industry that I'm in, because we actually reframe that word, right? We, in the Silicon Valley, in the tech industry, we don't call it failure, we call it pivot pivot yes yeah. <laughs> there's no- pivot iterate pivot iterate it, exactly yeah and uh and so we feel so the so whole notion that banks need to take 20 plus months to kind of launch products is just look at look at that means the pace of failure is is 48 months right because mm-hmm. every every if it takes you two years to launch a product and two years to realize that it didn't work out now your iteration pace is, is four years well how can i bring it down to four months or or even four weeks
0: mm-hmm.
1: um imagine the pace the rapid pace at which innovation would compound if we were were able to do that so that's kind of the other you know i i talk about this notion where you know if you ask a bank what are your biggest costs and and most most banks will be like oh, credit losses or operational costs or people costs or whatever it is the biggest cost in banking in my opinion unmeasured is the cost of lost opportunities.
0: Mm, yeah, we should talk about that. <laughs> but I want you to finish your thought first.
1: But yeah, no, so I think that you know we, we, ch- we believe that we're at the right place, the right time, we've chanced upon an inflection point where I think it's now, I mean, already, in, in the last several years, we're at a point where it's riskier, it's higher risk for a bank to not migrate to a next-gen platform than to sit on the sidelines and wait and watch. Um, um, so so it's, it's lower risk now to actually adopt a new platform than to just sort of sit on the sidelines, right? And we are the only full stack kind of, in terms of breadth and depth, um, across retail and commercial banking, across credit cards, debit cards, deposits, loans, the only platform that's built ground up, no piece of legacy code. Everything has been built by ourselves. Every piece, transaction processing, card management, ledger, core every piece is brand new technology that we've created with 1,700 people over the last seven years um, that's best poised to leverage this opportunity and truly, really create a meaningful transformation for financial institutions out there. And you know, I, I have this perspective on what a truly next-gen platform also is, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the Platforms out there, including the legacy ones, are using all the right right buzzwords. It's like okay, cloud-based and you know, APIs and microservices, and and while they're necessary technology enablers, you know the ingredients for a next-gen platform. But by default, they don't make a next-gen platform. You know, you could take I could take um, the cloud and APIs and give you the exact same experience that a legacy platform is giving you. That doesn't make the platform next-gen. Mm-hmm. You know, when when digital transformation is done right, it's like metamorphosis right it's like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly yeah and and you actually see it's a paradigm shift you can't recognize the previous world it's like when we went from feature phones to smartphones it wasn't just a better feature phone it was a completely different phone mm-hmm. when we went from data centers to cloud it wasn't just like better data centers it was a completely different experience yeah. um, you know if if you don't get digital transformation right you 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 just have a a faster caterpillar you <laughs> know, you, you don't really have a butterfly so yeah that's so, great um so we believe that we've got the only uh, you know truly next-gen platform out there that can really enable this transformation
0: yeah if i'm understanding you correctly it's not even so much a paradigm shift it's a creation of an entirely new paradigm yeah it is absolutely i agree yeah. better put yeah now you are involved in a lot of work within credit cards uh, and there is just a lot going on right now there it, maybe it's fear in the industry we've got rising debt, interest rates, and people are asking all the time how they can be differentiated in terms of the competition. What kind of strategies do you see as being effective to attract and retain customers?
1: For a bank, for a financial institution? Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, for a long time, I think credit cards have been around now for 60 years. And we live in a world where where 10,000 banks and credit unions are providing pretty much a near identical product to all their customers. A credit card in your wallet is probably the same as the one in mine. Mm -hmm. The only difference might be APRs and interest rates. There's no degree of personalization. There's no degree of uniqueness, et cetera. uh, There's no consumer delight. Like a next-gen platform should enable this whole notion of consumer, where's consumer delight in the banking world? Consumers talk about well, talk with such passion about products that they love, right? Like Apple and Tesla, and but but in the banking world, you know, where is the I don't know Goldman Groupie or <laughs> Capital One <laughs> cultist? Or where where is the where is that passion? Yes, and and the reason for that is that banking, because of the inherent um, underlying lack of capabilities of a legacy platform. Banking lacks the one fundamental ingredient that's required for consumer delight, and that's uniqueness. You know, delight doesn't delight comes from surprise, from treating you in a special way. So the word special implies that you get a treatment that nobody else gets. Yeah. That I, I give you an experience that I'm not giving. If you pick up any of the apps that you love today, Netflix, you know. Google, Instagram, you know, your experience in that app and my experience in the app are going to be completely different. The recommendations, the feed, the exactly. content, going to be completely different and personalized to each of
0: us. I've, I've always wondered why in banking, we're not at that point where there's hyper-personalization. The technology is there. The really brilliant visionaries are there. And yet, you see this. Even among the big banks, a real struggle to get beyond the same old products that have existed in the same old way for so long
1: well the technology enablers are there but the existing the the mainframe platforms th- there's no way they can deliver that degree any degree of personalization in a typical legacy platform you define a product construct and then you apply that. You enroll customers into that product construct, and if you enroll a you know million customers, all the million customers are going to see the exact same product construct because that's how system systems been architected. For true hyper personalization, you need to be able to create an architecture that has things like you know one of the popular uh, concepts in the software world that we brought into our stack is whole notion of inversion of control, which is that whenever state change takes place in the platform,
0: mm-hmm.
1: that you can actually provide dynamic, low-code, no-code um, snippets that will basically leverage the information available to be, to influence the next state change or the next, you know, event or the next outcome. For example, you know, let's take pricing,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? I will take a simple example of of of, of pricing, right? Um, you, you get a credit card from from a particular bank you sign up for a credit card the product construct is um, retail purchases will get 17 percent interest and cash withdrawals will have 24 percent interest and balance transfers will have three percent interest and and that's pretty much it you've got these three buckets and now you get five million customers who've got this card they're all going to see the exact same identical construct. Well, why can't we have? So, for instance, Zeta's platform. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were to look at hyperpersonalization, the hyperpersonalization engine that we've created, you could literally create constructs. I'll give you a, a sophisticated example. You could literally define things like, okay, well, if my customer, you know, makes a purchase at Target, let's say I have a, as a bank, I have a partnership with Target, makes a purchase at Target on a Tuesday target Tuesdays, um, mm-hmm. between 5 p.m. to 9 p.m., then if that transaction gets revolved, I wanna charge a promotional interest rate of 9%. Now, mm-hmm. this this kind of power by using attributes in the system, that's where the inversion control philosophy comes in, which is an event took place that you made a purchase. At that point, the, the state change paused and said, "You know, okay, well, now a transaction's taking place. I can take all the attributes off that transaction and trigger an appropriate promotion or a pricing or an interest trigger based on those attributes based on the value of the attributes based on your past behavior this kind of a uh, architecture or construct allows you to create hyper personalized pro- forget hyper personalization actually sure. i have this i have this favorite example that i talk about i'll give you a very simple example of personalization which is ATM cash withdrawal fees. This is just hypothetical. Mm-hmm. You use your card somewhere to withdraw cash, your bank charges you five bucks. It's a standard philosophy. That's, let's say it's a standard pricing for that product, right? Yeah. Now, the bank wants to implement something very tiny, it says that it's Lou's birthday today, and he's obviously gonna party. He's gonna go out with his friends. He's gonna need to withdraw cash. I wanna make him feel special. If on his birthday, he withdraws cash using an ATM, I wanna waive the ATM fee. There is not a single credit card or debit card platform in the world today that can implement this.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now it sounds so simple, yeah. I j- but but there but there's not one platform that can enable you. How would you do this in today's platforms? You would create a batch process in the night. That looks at all your customers who have birthdays today Mm -hmm. did any of them withdraw cash did we charge them fees let's reverse it as a post facto entry Mm -hmm. but waiving it in real time because it was his birthday that's
0: it it's real time like i've always wondered okay i walk into target let's say and the very helpful person at the register says well would you like to apply for a target credit card the first thing I do is look behind me and see 10 people with full carts. And it's gonna take me five <laughs> minutes to do this, which doesn't seem like a lot of time. But my thought has always been, well, why don't I walk up and the person at the register says, Lou, we wanna tell you that you've just been pre-approved for a card because we've checked your purchase history. That's real time. Yeah, I'm not scan the QR great... code and you're done. Yeah. Yeah, 10 seconds, walk it, out of here. Exactly, and it's sort of like when Finance, in a lot of ways, I believe, and I'd love a reality check on this, when it catches up to real time, that's when we can see some absolutely incredible things happen where we just have to imagine these ideas and then, um, you know, run them through the code and uh, get the right people behind them to make them happen.
1: Well, it applies to everything. I mean, so if you think about it... Life is a series of decisions. Banking is a series of decisions. You know, everything that you do to try and optimize an equation is a series of decisions, right? And each decision, it's it's a part diagram. So each decision is waiting on the previous dependent decision, which is waiting on the previous dependent decision. Now, imagine you've got a chain of 20 decisions to get to an outcome. Mm-hmm. If each decision is gonna be batch processed once a week or once a month or once a day, the final outcome is gonna take 20 days or 20 weeks or 20 months. Mm -hmm. But if each decision takes place in real time, you achieve the whole thing in less than two minutes or maybe even 20 seconds. The compounding effect of that, now imagine a scenario where this one decision chain represents an action. Um, Imagine there's millions of such decision chains that need to be running constantly. If you were to make all of that real time, you've shrunk the the timeline in which these outcomes can actually take place by such an exponential degree that pace of innovation, or or in this case, pace of progress will increase exponentially. So absolutely, the moment each system that you make real time will add a compounding effect in its contribution to the next system that needs the decision of this
0: system as an input. It's a righteous circle. Yeah. Now, we talked last year and it was my first time sitting down with you and was just really blown away at how you combine art and science. You are a coder from way back, as you mentioned, someone who knows the technical side cold, and yet you have built companies as creations and watched them blossom and multiply, and you've brought great people in as part of the process and have been a change agent. If we're going to sit down, let's say, at next year's Money 2020, and I hope it's a lot sooner than that, what visions alongside all of the technical and business things that you're doing uh, do you hope that you might realize? What's in the future, do you think?
1: I I would say one year is a bit of a short time frame to talk about a visionary future, but I will talk about my perspective on where I see banking heading, especially in this whole... Mm -hmm. um, you know, world of, um, uh, of artificial intelligence, the pace at which, um, the notion of kind of machine based decisioning is kind of rapidly, um, becoming norm in, in so many areas, right? Actually, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of kind of evolution of decision-making. So if you think about decision-making in any industry, banking is not, um, you know, no different basically. Decision-making kind of has evolved through three distinct phases. If you talk about past to present, you know, phase one was all about experience led human decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So loan officers would rely on their 20 years of having issued loans and would take one look at Lou and be like, ah, you look like a good guy. And there's a bit of a gut and, you Mm -hmm. know, intuition involved, but it's experience-led. doctors, right? Diagnosis was done based on experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was kind of phase one of decision-making was all experience led human decisions and experience was valued. Mm -hmm. Phase two, you know you bring in data now so it's data assisted human decisions so loan officers started looking at credit scores and financial histories and a bunch of other stuff for like that right doctors have access to blood tests and, and and you know x-rays and MRI imaging and things like that so you can use data along with your experience to make decisions phase three we've gotten into kind of this whole mode of um, ai assisted decisioning AI has become kind of an ally in in banking for underwriting for fraud in in medicine for you know um, uh, image comparisons and evaluations and things of that to be able to assist it 's still a human decision but it 's assisted by ai or it 's you know a combination of the two I see you know the future of um, decisioning is 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 what's already happened in a couple of industries, but moving towards the whole notion of AI-driven decisions, which mm-hmm. is not just you know decisions where AI is an assistant and it's kind of AI-assisted human decisions, but rather AI is driving the decisions, making those decisions at, at compute speed, at the speed of thought, basically, right? And banking, in many ways, I find... Uh, this is, by the way, no science fiction because computer games... You know, online advertising. Many of these industries is many of the decisions are already now AI driven. There's no human yeah. involvement whatsoever. Absolutely. But banking, I I I've always believed. In fact, even more so than games and other, um, you know, um, um, industries, I've always believed banking is far more conducive, fundamentally, to this transformative leap to AI driven decisions. Because if you think about banking, what is what is banking? Well, banking seeks to it's it's a return on equity, a return on assets, let's say, even if uh-huh. you don't wanna take the equity leap, sure. right? And, and so ba- it, the answers kinda of lies in this, this whole elegance of mathematics, if you will, which is that banking can be distilled down to this fundamental mathematical equation of return on assets is income, which is your interchange, interest, fee income, minus expense, which is your you know OPEX and people costs and technology costs over assets. Now, this is a, uh, I'm giving a simplified form of it, but this is a mathematical sure. equation, and every single decision that bankers are taking, every single decision in banking is about optimizing this equation, right? Uh, whether it's credit officers, underwriting, fraud risk, you know, authorization decisions, it's all about how do I optimize return on assets through this equation? Well, if you think of banking as a video game, it's not easy to now, it's, it's not difficult now to make that leap uh, in, in in like, Well, there can be a sophisticated, there will be a sophisticated deep learning model Because what are the levers to optimize this equation? The levers are mathematically deterministic too. You know, what can I do? It's underwriting decisions. Should I give Lou a loan? It's authorization decisions. Should I authorize the transaction that he just did? It's credit limit decisions. Should I increase his credit limit, decrease his credit limit? It's, you know, um, fraud decisions. It's just, there's about five or six input levers or maybe 10 input levers. Mm -hmm. And really all you can manipulate are those input levers to optimize ROA. And now you imagine, you know instead of humans doing this day in and day out in a batch mode a sophisticated deep learning model that's been trained on human behavior that's been trained on past behavior that's got adaptive learning built in that can manipulate these levers on a per customer per account and per transaction basis to goal seek an way No, no different from how you goal seek a cac um, um you know uh, um, it, when and bid for Google ads, you're saying, okay, I wanna, I'm willing to pay $50 for each customer. There is a sophisticated deep learning algorithm that's figuring out, well, here are 500 customers, but this one's likely to convert, this one's not. So in order to optimize for a $50 CAC, who should I send to the website mm-hmm. that, that Lou runs? So well, similarly in banking, like the goal seek is ROA. way. My input levers are these you know, 10, 15 levers that I have. I've got early leading indicators and lagging indicators. And I've got this literally game this sophisticated algorithm that essentially you know, heralds this AI-led, or AI-driven decision-based um, banking that basically gives you the best possible outcome for return on asset optimization. And that to me is the holy grail of banking, and I, and I see very clearly a path on, on how that can be achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, again, actually the hindrance, as I said, AI is already doing this in several industries. The hindrance in the banking industry is well, what are the ingredients that are needed for this vision to come to life? Well, if you want a sophisticated AI model, firstly, it needs to be trained, which means you need to have access to all data. Well, most of the legacy platforms are closed data platforms. It's very hard to get access to mm-hmm. data. You need a modern stack that can actually give you access to that data to train these models, labeled data for supervised learning. Well, once this AI model is trained, as I said, it needs to make millions of decisions. And what are these decisions? These are decisions are micro adjustments, and nile, do, knobs and dials mm-hmm. on a per customer, per account, per transaction basis, where no legacy platform allows you to adjust interests and rewards and credit decisions and on a per transaction, per per account basis. So you need mm-hmm. a hyper-personalization engine and micro adjustment APIs in a modern platform that can enable that. Yeah. And then the third thing is that the notion of adaptive learning. Well, you know, you've got a trained model through data it's making these millions of decisions well how does it know which ones it got right and which ones it got wrong you need a real time event feedback system yeah. that feeds in the impact of each of those decisions back to this model yeah. so it can adaptively learn these ingredients didn't didn't, didn't exist until platforms like zeta came along mm-hmm. and now that they do this kind of science fiction picture that i'm painting is now actually
0: achievable yeah. it's so, fact yeah it's fact We've covered so much ground, but I don't wanna leave without giving you the floor one last time if there's something we haven't covered that you'd be eager to talk about or something that you want to bring up or say to the audience, now's the time.
1: Sure, I, I think we were talking about this before. It's probably a good um, um, good conclusive ending to our, our discussion uh, is, is, is this you know, kind of starting out from what banking is, I want to talk about risk management. Mm-hmm. And, and and banking is, is all about, it's a balance sheet business, it's all about managing risk. In fact, every single banking decision is about, you know, optimizing ROA way while managing risk. And, and, and you know, I, I, I said this to you before, it's like, you know, banking as an industry has become so good at managing risks that sometimes they've sort of stopped taking risks. And, um, you know, it, Andy Grove, uh, former CEO of Intel, came up with this whole notion of inflection points in his book, uh, Only the Paranoid Survive, um, which basically talks about the notion where an inflection point is a fundamental paradigm shift in industry that basically changes the default order and requires incumbents to evolve and adapt in order to not just to thrive, but to even survive. Mm-hmm. And I strongly believe, you know, we're, we're at that inflection point in banking where the only strategy that's guaranteed to fail is a strategy of not taking risks. It's higher risk now for a bank to not look at, not give a serious look at a next-gen platform for card processing and core banking than the risk of sitting and waiting and
0: watching on the sidelines. They have to move. They have to move. They're lucky to have you and Zeta (laughs) as allies. Likewise,
1: we're lucky to have an industry to play with.
0: There we go. Bhavan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I love having these conversations with you and I cannot wait for the next one. Thank you, likewise. Bhavan Tarakia is a serial tech entrepreneur and the founder of Zeta. He is based in New York City. Be sure to look for Bhavan on LinkedIn.
1: you are listening to Lou Carlozo's Bankadelic: The Colorful Side of Finance. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at NMD Plus, based in London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas. If you like what you've heard here, be sure to check out NMD Plus's financial technology podcast, Dave
0: and Darm Demystify, with hosts Dave Wallace and Darmesh Mystery. Bankadelic. Have you thought about how you'll gain the upper hand in your search for stellar talent? BankerHire leverages a niche industry with uncommon insight. They're committed to finding you qualified commercial and community banking, lending, compliance, HR, retail, and wealth talent. BankerHire prides itself on listening and solving problems. Their approach is 100% hands-on and heads-up, giving you what you need to make smart actionable decisions. For more information, visit BankerHire.com. With more than 1.2 million page views annually, Talking Biz News is the go-to source for happenings in business journalism. Whether you're a PR professional, a business journalist, or someone just breaking into the field, TBN is a source that you cannot do without. Whether you're following The Washington Post, New York Times, local media outlets, or some feisty news startup, Talking Biz News has you covered. Job openings are also listed and updated every day on the TBN website. Be sure to sign up for your free subscription to the TBN newsletter at Talking Biz News. That's talkingbiznews.com. Thanks for tuning in to Bankadelic. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault. Our producer in Chicago is Ken Montone, our business consigliere, the one and only Rob Gaynor. Dude, I totally got into the show. Thanks, as always, to the William Mills Agency for their generous support. Thanks also to Banker Hire, Lemonade LXP, and Talking Biz News, a division of Vested LLC. I'm Lou Carloso. You can catch me on LinkedIn and at the Civil War reenactment as Abraham Lincoln. Until next time, so long. Bankadelic is a production of NMD+, London,
1: Chicago, and Austin, Texas.